This is a podcast about racial violence, their descriptions of lynchings, and its modern-day expressions. This material may not be suitable for all audiences. Support for The Red Record comes from the Lynching Sites Project, a Memphis nonprofit dedicated to creating a new legacy of racial equity and justice by turning the light of truth on lynchings in the Shelby County, Tennessee area. Welcome to the first season of The Red Record, a podcast to share the stories of victims of racial terror lynchings in the Memphis area in an effort to uncover the whole truth of our history so we can pursue understanding and healing for our future. We are your hosts, Laura Faith Cabetta and Rich Watkins. This episode is one of two about arguably the most infamous lynching in Shelby County, known as the People's Grocery, or the lynching at the curve. Let's dive in. I'm your co-host, Laura Faith Cavetta. This episode, we pick up the story of the People's Grocery lynching after the local black militia leaves guarding the jail because the white men who were injured in the gunfight were expected to live. Here is Mahindra Prasad, a PhD candidate at Berkeley and native Memphian whose research helped pinpoint the location of the People's Grocery lynching. Moss, McDowell, and Stewart are arrested. Uh, they are taken to jail. Uh, March 5th, and for a couple of days, the Tennessee Rifles, uh, a black militia, guarded them at the jail. And a couple of days passed, and the Tennessee Rifles, they stopped. Uh, Tension seemed to ease. This is around uh, March 8th. Uh, What happened after that? So the early morning of March 9th, before sunrise, around 2.30 a.m.-ish, uh, what happened was about uh, roughly 75 mass men went into broke went into the uh, into the jail and they were given no resistance, basically just let in by the uh, essentially just let in by the by the uh, the deputies there the and the law enforcement there. And, and where did you find this account? Uh, where did you find this? Account? Uh, these were, this was actually uh, the original account that most people draw from is actually from the Avalanche Appeal, which was the uh, newspaper record at the time. There's this wide belief because of the, how detailed the description is that it was so well-known within the white community that this was going to happen that a reporter was able to tag along and to, to basically document what was going on while uh, you know, it was all happening. Because the uh, descriptions of what happened is like almost like a live blow-by-blow account. You know, Even from their description, it's not a very sympathetic... <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, it's... Not they didn't write it unsympathetically, but they wrote it like in a neutral tone. So, but when you read it, it's like this is disgusting. You know, this is gross. This is basically like you know mob rule. You know, they took them a mile north of the jail, which is where the lynching site is, uh, a, a mile north of the jail, and they shot them. The lynchings at the curve, now known as the People's Grocery Store lynching, were covered widely at the time. Links to articles found by the Lynching Sites Project can be found in the show notes and on our website at lynchingsitesprojectmem.org. I will read from two accounts. A warning. The excerpts depict violent scenes that may not be suitable for young listeners. This from the Appeal Avalanche, Memphis, Thursday, March 10, 1892. 
the mob's work done with guns, not rope. Three in a row were the corpses. They all lay with their heads toward the west. They were about equal distance apart, perhaps five feet between each of them. Tom Moss lay farthest to the north. He was the smallest of the three, having a weight of about 150 pounds. He was very dark-skinned and had a chin beard. He lay with his face to the ground, his arms outstretched, with his hands clenched firmly in the earth. He had no shoes on and no coat. From his hip pocket protruded a paper, which, on inspection, was found to be a Sunday school publication. The finders turned the body over, and the hands which had been embedded in the earth still remained clenched, filled with clay and grass. It was found that he had been killed with what was either a revolver or Winchester wound on the left side of the neck. Next to him lay Will Stewart, a somewhat larger man and rather light complexioned. He lay on his back and bore several wounds to attest the marksmanship of his slayers. On the right side of his neck was a large ragged hole evidently made by a shotgun. There were also two pistol shots in his neck and one in his left eye. His hands were tied together at the wrist and lay over his bosom. The rope used was apparently a piece of a new clothesline. Calvin McDowell lay to the south of the others. He had been horribly butchered. There were no marks on the ground to show that he had struggled for his life, but his slayers had taken care that there should be no mistake about his demise. There were four holes in his face and neck, any one of them large enough to allow the insertion of a person's fist. These holes had been made with loads from shotguns fired at a distance of maybe ten feet. One hole was in the right and the other in the left side of the neck. One hole was on the right side of the mouth, and the charge that made it also broke the lower jaw and gave the face an expression horribly grotesque. The fourth large hole was in and around the right eye. The eye was not to be seen. The hole covered part of the nose also, and looked as though an instrument about the size of a cup had been pressed into the face there. The lower part of the palm of the right hand had been shot away, as though the doomed man had put up that member against the muzzle of a gun, and the charge had passed through it. On his neck were a couple of bullet wounds, and, a and another was visible near his left eye. There was scarcely a spot on his face as big as a silver dollar that had not been perforated with some kind of missile. The following is an excerpt from the New York Times, published March 10, 1892, Negroes Lynched by a Mob. In a few minutes, the suburbs of the city were reached, and in an open field near Wolf River, the Negroes met their death. For the first time, they were allowed to speak. As the gags were removed, Moss said, If you are going to kill us, turn our faces to the west. Scarcely had he uttered those words, when the crack of a revolver was heard, and a ball crashed through his cheek. This was the signal for the work. A volley was poured upon the shivering Negroes as they fell dead. Now you may have noticed that there is an inconsistency in the quote attributed to Thomas Moss. According to our guest, Mahindra Prasad, 
Moss was quoted as telling his people to go west and that there was no justice for them here. Ida B. Wells wrote that these were his last words. She seemed to cite to the Memphis commercial of March 10, 1892 for this quote, but our researchers have been unable to locate it in that paper. The Tennessee Historical Commission marker at the site of the People's Grocery uses this quotation as well. Several newspapers report Moss's words as, If you are going to kill us, turn our faces to the West. This was quoted in the Nashville Daily American, the New York Times, as we quoted above, Chattanooga Daily Times, and the Knoxville Journal. These articles appear to draw on the same source or sources without specifying what they were. Although what Moss actually said has been lost in the fog of history, what is clear is that this lynching sent a message that black people should move west, and thousands did. Now, the lynching site abuts Grime City Brewery, which opened in 2020. We reached out to the owner, Hopper Seeley, who grew up in the Memphis suburbs and attended one of the remaining private schools that opened during desegregation in the 1970s. We wanted to know what he thought about the tragedy that took place on these grounds and when he first learned about lynching in general. Hello, my name is Hopper Seeley and I am the president and founder of Grind City Brewing Company. Let me start with, with this. Where'd you grow up? Uh, from Memphis and then uh, moved out to Carterville and then moved out to the rural of, of Rossville, then back to downtown Memphis. So when I first called you, contacted you about uh, the site of the actual lynching being near here, what was your first reaction? Can you? My, my first reaction was, oh, bleep, that's not good. <laughs> if I'm being fair, it's like, oh, that's not good. That's not good for, mul for multiple reasons. One, I always thought it was downtown by the actual, but I didn't know it. Was, that was just a memorial of this is where the shop was. I didn't know that. Well, I was just thinking about, like, just looking out from where we are and seeing, like, the pyramids, seeing downtown, the sky rise, you know, and just how, like, close and far it is right now. Like, we're pretty far removed like from downtown still, it's like kind of off in the distance and thinking about like, even though like the lynching itself had a very public message, you know, of like <laughs> intimidation, like it was done in private. And like, that's, that's always like struck me about the people's grocery. Like there's so many other lynchings where it was like a spectacle and like people picnicked and like were ready and waiting where this one was like kind of, Far removed. That's yeah, a, that's, that's actually a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's just hard to imagine, you know, like as we're looking at all this greenery, hearing the birds, and just like the, that kind of contrast is just, I'm just thinking on that as we're looking out. But yeah. On lynching itself, growing up, you grew up here in the South, in the mm -hmm. Mid South. When do you think you first heard about lynching it, and how did that come about? I mean, I first heard about lynching in uh, probably in elementary school. I heard about it, but that was kind of it. It was like base level, hey, this horrible thing happened. All right, next subject. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, kind of brushed under the rug. And then uh, it's like usually every like once a year, maybe, uh, they would mention it at every every level. I had one teacher, after you and I had our first discussion, I was thinking about previous teachers, like, I know someone had to tell me about that. And I had a teacher in high school who he actually, he dove in pretty deep on it because uh, he was really touched by it. 
because no one else taught about it. Mm. And like, well, he's also known for not teaching out of the textbook. He's like, it's not in this textbook. So I'm going to tell you what happened. Those are the best kind of teachers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Coach Orr was, was, he was, he was really good. But he uh, kind of gave us a rundown a lot on lunging, but still not to the level of, like, that's it, base level. Right. Yes. I mean, it's not really, at least in my experience, it wasn't really taught too much mm-hmm. in school or anything outside of that. And then, I mean, I listen to podcasts, and it's brought up every once in a while, but again, nothing deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the high school teacher, that he started to go a little bit deeper. Like, mm-hmm. what was that versus when there was a time that you went deeper? Like, what was the, the well, well, like, there? well, you have teachers that read from a book mm-hmm. that's like, here's your textbook. You have to teach on this. And to their point, it's like, hey, if I don't teach them this, they're going to fail their tests. And then you have some teachers who, right, look, here's what the book says. You need to know this for your test. <clears throat> but this is a part of history that we have not gone through, and I want to take you through it. And he, and he didn't just say, like, lynching happened, it was bad. He would, bring out, he would actually give you a story behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, he would tell, like, the best way to, to teach history is to tell, tell the story of the yeah. history. Yeah. So that would, I would say, and also getting the attention of kids in school is really hard. That's another thing, too. Like, I know I didn't care in school. Mm-hmm. Most kids don't. Like, we're just like, oh, we have to sit here for seven hours, and then we can play football or basketball after school. But that teacher stuck with you. In the he did. He told us, do you remember the story he told? I don't remember exactly. That's the sad part, because I was not a good student by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember him talking about it. Uh, it wasn't, the, I know it wasn't the, uh, the grocery. I think his, it was somebody in Birmingham. I remember the city. I don't remember anything. I don't really remember much outside of that. I remember I loved him as a teacher, loved his teaching style, and that's really all I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember a few things that he taught. Right, right. And so what was the, the time that, like, you started to, I guess, learn more in depth? And, like, what did that look in like? In depth? Honestly, it just, it comes, it comes in waves. Yeah. Like, I just listen to, I, because work is kind of stressful, I try to, when I leave work, I listen to something that has nothing to do with work. And it's usually podcasts, and he has random people on. They talk about random things. And, like, every once in a while, he'll bring on somebody who goes, like, he's like, oh, yeah, this is how you thought it was bad. This is how really bad it was. And it was, a, I think it was a cop from Baltimore that actually, like, went through, like, and he left and was like, hey, this is what was really happening in Baltimore during the years. Here's what the real estate laws were. Here was what the bank loan laws were and how, you know, this is only about 40, 50 years ago. Actually, no, it was 1960, so that's uh, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like, hey, like, we got to keep pushing forward. When you think about it, when you go through history school, uh, history class, it's usually just basic information. It's like, Revolutionary War happened here. Civil War happened here. This happened here. This happened here. And it's like, all right, you graduated. Good job. It's a recitation of facts. Yeah, it, that's actually, right? yeah. It's a recitation of facts, and it's not until you get to that college level where you go into the reasons why things happen and, and as I said even in AP American history that I took it was it was the lost cause criteria so we got to talking about well you know the southern states want to do this with their industry and da, 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 da. But, you know so. uh, no, I remember that one I was like yeah but the confederate constitution stated that you by law had to have slave slavery to be legal Kind of a big part of it, man. <laughs> right, <and laughs> kind of a I don't big ever part. I remember examining the Confederate Constitution. Well, no, I heard, uh, you know? I heard some, somebody was like, somebody read it, and I didn't read the whole thing, but they were like, read this section and then tell me it wasn't about slavery. 
Right. And he was arguing that it's it was about slavery. Yeah. And then I read that and I was like, oh, I mean, the, you know, the two documents was... are pretty similar, except for that part. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it seemed like it would be a basic thing to say, okay, read the U.S. Constitution, read the Confederate Constitution, yeah. compare and contrast. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that was not done. <laughs> a great lesson. We should suggest that to someone. <laughs> so, but I think this conversation we're having helps because it makes it easier for people. People when people listen to this, it'll make it easier for them to have the conversation. Some of what you've mentioned is like connecting, you know, like that just wasn't that long ago. What were some other things that have helped you connect to like then and now? Well, honestly, it was, I'd say my brother. Mm-hmm. So my, we had, uh, my brother's adopted. Uh, we, so he joined our family. Uh, he was in third grade. I was in fifth and he was black. I was, I'm white. And we, I, like, I was always raised like, there's no difference. I'm like, all right, cool. Like, we're good to go. We're having fun. And he just had a completely different upbringing than me. It wasn't like he was adopted as a baby. I mean, he was adopted at, you know, third grade. Like, the brutal, the crucial years of raising a kid are in those newborn toddler years. And he was in a foster home the entire time. So him growing up and me growing up in the same environment and seeing little things, that was what I usually still remember. Like, one, uh, violence is not the answer. But I did get in a fight for him because somebody said a horrible thing to him. And luckily, my my friends in the neighborhood were also like, uh, no, that's he's one of our own. Like, no. So just seeing things like that, it was just like, who raised you to say something that horrible? But and now my brother is thriving. Love that man so much. But he's, uh, he's the main reason why, like, if I hear something, it's not just like, oh, I don't just brush it off. I listen. I'm like, all right, what is this really about? Because I know me and my brother grew up in the same household pretty much for our entire lives. And we have most of, it, most of our lives, it was the exact same thing. But it was little things here and there. I just add up. That's, used, that's what kind of got me to get deeper into it. Because it wasn't just like an abstract thing. Like this, this I, I could see abstract. it. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see it. The next day, what happens at the grocery store? Next day, the grocery store is ransacked, and uh, it's it's just completely ransacked. And then pretty soon thereafter, uh, Barrett buys the grocery store for pennies on the dollar. It's just a, another travesty. There was no justice given to them, to the workers and the people of the People's Grocery. The cries from the African-American community at the time that, that would call for an investigation, they were just basically ignored. Oh, not only were they ignored, they were threatened. I mean, that's why Ida B. Wells left Memphis, because she kept trying to report on it. And she kept reporting on it, and they, like, she she had a newspaper at the time in Memphis, and they, you know, they they firebombed her offices, and they, you know, they were sending death threats, so she she basically couldn't come back to Memphis. Because when when the lynchings occurred, she happened to not be in Memphis at the time. Uh, and, but she was getting so many threats that she realized if she came back to Memphis, she was going to get, you know, lynched herself. So she, 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 that's why, why, that's the main reason she left Memphis. And then eventually years later, she ended up in Chicago, but that was, cause she'd been in Memphis for a long time. She was born in Holly Springs, uh, in down in the Mississippi, which is roughly give or take 50 miles from Memphis. Uh, and then she, she went to Russ college, uh, also near Holly Springs. Yeah. And then she came up to Memphis as a school teacher and she was 
then she said in the newspaper it was and she'd been here for several years in Memphis um, and then she had to leave because she was reporting on this Ida B. Wells had suspicions of who was part of the lynch mob and she was quite certain that the leaders of the city of Memphis knew who was in the lynch mob but no one was ever indicted no one was ever tried and no one was ever publicly identified with the mob that I know of. That's Margaret Vandiver, professor emeritus at University of Memphis. We heard from her last episode. She has researched lynchings and their connection to the death penalty today. Did she ever publish who she thought, who she suspected were a member of the gang? I believe she thought that William Barrett, the rival grocery store owner, was one. And she may even have had suspicions of Judge DuBose. No one was ever indicted or tried for the lynching, but some of the African-American men who tried to defend the people's grocery from attack were charged and tried and convicted. They were given um, sentences by a jury in front of Judge DuBose, the same judge, and Judge DuBose was infuriated by what he considered to be light sentences, and he actually screamed at the jury uh, and threw them out of court. He was so enraged by what he thought were light sentences, but the only people who ever did any time for any of these events were the defenders of the people's grocery. This bears repeating. The only people who were punished and held accountable by law enforcement for the events surrounding the lynching of Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart were the black men who defended the people's grocery store from attack. What happens to the neighborhood where People's Grocery Store was located? Well, you know, it's very close to where Lemoyne Owen is today, right? And Owen is a historically African-American school. And so you had a large uh, African-American population developed there. And it was, it, it was, it's where a lot of African-American culture in Memphis has developed. And also it became part of the city pretty soon after that, some point in the either late 19th century, early 20th century. I don't know exactly when, but that soon became part of the city. And it's very much, you know, the, everybody today, though, that's definitely not a suburb. That's part of the city today. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, it became, eventually became part of Memphis officially, and uh, it became, the area became associated with Lemoyne Owen College. Dr. Ernestine Jenkins, an art history professor at the University of Memphis, says what happened after the lynching was just as important. What what are some things that um, was evident after the lynching? Like, what what was that the impact there? That that's a part of the history that still needs a lot of uh, attention and research to be paid to it, because often I think that when people do the histories of lynching, they kind of stop right there, you know, with the horror of it, and they don't really sort of go back and and deal with the fact that this happened these lynchings happen within specific black communities and what about them? How did they respond to that? How did they handle it? It sounds like people's grocery is really um, uh, representative of that, of you know businesses rising up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the things out of it was also comes the same year, 1880, 1881, when black 
people have finished the construction of historic Bill Street Baptist Church. And that was a big deal. It's still a big deal because that church, if you know anything about uh, the history of blacks in this area, that is historic because it's the first church created in stone or permanent materials built by former slaves after the Civil War. Former slaves started that church in 1866. It took them about 20 years to build it. It doesn't look like it looked when Ida B. Wells was here because it had two tall steeples at the top of it that fell down and it had a steel figure of John the Baptist on top of it. And it was one of the most visible sites associated with black progress and prosperity in Memphis. And it was working class people who pooled their pennies and their dimes together in that church under the direction of Reverend Morris Henderson, who was a beloved black former slave, was enslaved to a woman out in the Raleigh area. And he was the first black minister of historic Bill Street Baptist Church. The importance of the sacred life of religion, the center of the church, and black people's history, especially after freedom. So it, it, it's expressive of a sort of national black cultural because they no longer have the support of law, of federal law to protect them. And so it's not just in Memphis, it's across the country that you see black communities relying upon their own selves within segregation uh, to protect themselves, to build their economies and their businesses, to educate themselves um, with schools and with HBCUs. So that internal focus within, that's what happens behind lynching and the increased violence of the 1880s and 1890s. The funeral was one of the largest held in Memphis. There were several thousand people there, too many to even um, get into the church. And many people followed the funeral procession to Zion Cemetery. After incidents of racial terror, the effects on the community are long lasting. We visited Zion Cemetery where Thomas Moss is buried. Zion Cemetery was created about two decades earlier in 1873 by a new black fraternal association called United Sons of Zion to help black people bury each other since they were blocked from white cemeteries. Up until about 15 years ago, this was basically wilderness. It had grown up so much that it was like a forest. People had forgotten this cemetery was over here. And then students uh, at like the University of Kentucky and people who were studying the history of Ida B. Wells, they started to ask, well, where are Calvin McDowell and Will Stewart and Thomas Moss buried? And through the research, they found where they're buried in this cemetery in Memphis called Zion Christian Cemetery. But nobody knows where the burial sites are. And so they started coming down on their spring breaks to start clearing out by hand, you know, all of this brush and stuff. Over the years, local groups, school groups, uh, community organizations in Memphis started to help. They got help from the city with the bulldozers and stuff like that to help clear out some of the, lar the largest spaces as they moved back. 
Did they ever find out where exactly uh, the people's grocery store victims were buried? Yeah, I'm going to show you that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, we're, we're walking up to that. The burial site includes just Thomas Moss. We don't know where the other two were buried. It's surrounded by several really old trees that threatened to collapse onto the marker that was just erected. Dr. Jenkins is working on gathering funds and and resources to trim or uh, take down the trees so that the marker is preserved. There's a sign that's at the foot of his grave that was erected in 2019. It includes a picture. I'm going to read it. Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, William Henry Stewart, the lynching at the curve. In March of 1892, business partners Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Henry Stewart were arrested for defending themselves against an attack on their store, the People's Grocery. The white competitor and the deputy sheriffs he hired were met with gunfire. Several deputies were wounded but survived. Nevertheless, Moss, McDowell, and Stewart were taken from the downtown jail by masked vigilantes. Uh, he had a silver casket, Tom Moss did, because he was the most established uh, at the Sunday school and as a postman. They just gave them a very, you know, um, just profound going away ceremony. The grief, of course, was, uh, was very strong. But the point that I was trying to make, and there's writing on the other side, the same, continued on the other side, was about how does the black community respond to lynching? We're always looking at it from the perspective of whites and the balance of it. But when a lynching happens, the black community and the family, that's who has to deal with that. How do they deal with that and absorb that and come back from that? And part of the funeral ceremony is how you did that. These were members, upstanding members of their community. People turned out, you know, in great grief uh, for this going away. We don't look at how black people really deal with that and how long a memory of something like that lasts. The memory of this lynching was still there when you have the lynching of L. Persons several decades later. That that doesn't go away. Drawing a parallel to today, when there are what we could categorize as modern day lynchings in another word, um, the response generally is not the um, building up of black community. It's more of uh, demanding a response from the white community, which I see as like two very different approaches than what was happening around the people's grocery. Instead of saying, we want uh, you know, these people to be held accountable. The response then was, well, since this, this is gonna be our reality, then we need to protect ourselves and do what we can in our own community to, to strengthen each other. I see it as sort of a final reckoning with the things that did not get followed through on in terms of our racial heritage and how we have to deal with it those things that were left undone by the Civil War and why people refusing to deal with it. A hundred years later, times are different. Why people can no longer refuse to deal with it. Because now we understand that white supremacy doesn't benefit anybody and it doesn't benefit whites. 
in 2021. And it hurts everybody and it hurts the entire country and it hurts the entire world. In the following months after the lynching, an estimated 6,000 black people heeded Thomas Moss's instruction to leave Memphis. Even Ida B. Wells traveled to Oklahoma to scout out the area as a potential place for Memphians to resettle. Memphis, the city where many black people came to in search of opportunities, was becoming a place to flee. Ida B. Wells herself was run out of town a few months later because of her writings about the lynching aftermath. I think it's important in terms of the discussion that we're having to have about facts and lying. History should be about telling the truth. I remember one of my professors saying that don't be a historian if you don't have a stomach for the truth because most of what you're going to find out, a lot of it is, or most of it is not going to be good about human beings. And I always say to my students, a lot of times at the beginning of class, you know, that I teach about the good, the bad, and the ugly, because that's who human beings are. We're good, we're bad, we're ugly. <laughs> that's what the human experience is. People so often say, why is this important? Why are you digging this up? Why are you bringing up this ugly history and putting it forward now? And I think there, there are many important answers to that, but one of them is the symbolic power of lynching remains enormously important. If white people want to harass or threaten or intimidate African Americans, what is the symbol that they use to do that in 2021? The noose the lynching noose. The power of that symbol is so great, even today. And the people who use that as a symbol of hate probably don't know a whole lot themselves about lynching, but they understand that lynching is at the very center of racial terror. And they understand that the noose is the most powerful emblem of violent white supremacy. And that alone, to me, means we have to delve into this. We have to know what it is. We have to bring it out and look at it square in the face, or it's going to continue to haunt us in this way. This podcast is produced by Rich Watkins, Laura Faith Cabetta, and board members of the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. It's edited by Madeline Plaster. The music is performed by Laura Faith Cabetta and includes excerpts from the books of American Negro Spirituals by James Weldon Johnson and J. Rosamond Johnson. To learn more about lynchings in Shelby County, visit www.lynchingsitesmem.org and follow us on Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you.
In the show notes, you'll find the full newspaper story about the People's Grocery lynching, as well as resources for further research. The name of our podcast, The Red Record, honors the name of Ida B. Wells' book that documented lynchings across the country and revealed the racist motivations of thousands of killings. 